Well, good morning. It's so good to be here with you guys. Um, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 3, 8 through 13. And while you're getting there, um, I did want to bring you greetings from our church in Niamey. We would say that as fofo. Uh, fofo means hello or thank you. So if you ever find yourself in Niger for some reason, I've just given you two words, so you're pretty good to go. Um, this is Grace Church, church that we had the privilege of being part of planting almost a year ago. Um, it's a church that, while most of us were asleep this morning, was gathering to do just what you're doing, um, to lift up Christ and to have our affections stirred um, and push us towards the nations. Our family, if you don't know us, we've spent the last 16 years there in Niger, West Africa. Um, we've had the joy and the privilege in our time there of doing what Paul said in Romans was his ambition, which was to, to take the gospel where Christ has not been named. Niger is a dark Place. It's a place 99.8% of the population does not know Christ, uh, the majority of which don't know him because just as Scott prayed, they've, they've never heard the name of Christ. Um, and so we, we've just had the incredible privilege and honor and opportunity to, to see the Lord working through his word and through his gospel, um, bringing light into darkness. We, we've been here in the States for about four months, and if the Lord tarries, we'll be returning home to Niger in just a few weeks. Um, and as Sam mentioned, if you're interested in learning more about our ministry there and, and kind of the pathway we're on and the ministry we're going back to, uh, we would invite you to join us again this evening for that. But now let's, let's turn our attention to, to why we've really gathered here this morning, that in God's kindness to us, that the Spirit of God might take the Word of God and transform us, the people of God, more and more into the image of His beloved Son, the Son of God. Let's look at Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 13. And if you're able, would you stand in honor of reading these words from our God to the church? Paul writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to, all the Genti to, preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would do what only you can do. It's only you who can save. It's only you who can bring life out of deadness. Only you who can replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh. And so we would ask in your kindness to us this morning that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. In the year 1732, there were two 20-something German tradesmen who heard about the plight of 3,000 African slaves who were on the island of St. Thomas in the West Indies. And what these two Germans heard was that there was a hunger among these slaves for the gospel, but there was no one who was able to share with them. And that was in large part because of their slave master, who was a staunch atheist who'd vowed and said publicly that no missionary would get anywhere near his slaves. And so these two German men 
found no other option, no other pathway to get the gospel to these men. And so they determined then to sell themselves as slaves so that they might be counted among those African slaves and thus share the gospel with them. And as these two 20-something German tradesmen, as they boarded that slave ship that would carry them in chains to that island, they looked up and they noticed their loved ones on the dock weeping for them, realizing this was likely the last time they would see them. And seeing their loved ones in that state, these two men on that slave ship, chained together, raised their shackled fist in the air, and they cried out, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. And these two men's lives, and, and really those words in particular, they became a, a rallying cry. And it just sparked unprecedented missionary activity among their brethren in the Moravian community. Now, what I want us to think about this morning is, is what does that phrase mean? And maybe more importantly, what is the theology behind that statement? A theology that, that would drive men in the prime of their lives to abandon the prospects of marriage and family, to abandon money and career, a life of ease and relative comfort, and to sell themselves as slaves so that they might reach others with this gospel. And I believe that these words, these men spoke from that slave ship, are a summation of the whole point of history. They're a summation of the whole theme of Scripture that I believe these men understood clearly what Paul's talking about in this passage we just read in Ephesians. This letter penned from prison in Rome, written to this beloved church. It's written to this church in Ephesus where Paul administered for three years, we learned in Acts 19, as part of his third missionary journey. And in this letter, Paul does such a great job, as always, of showing the beautiful balance of, of doctrine and duty, of laying theological foundations and showing how those lead to practical applications, where understanding more and more of who we are in Christ becomes the fuel, becomes the means necessary for living lives then worthy of our calling. And this letter to this church is also a letter of encouragement to, to not lose heart, Paul knows these people. He knows these Christians in Ephesus might be tempted to grow discouraged, potentially be fearful as they hear of his imprisonment, his being in chains. And so Paul knows they might be concerned for him, worried about him, worried about these trials that he's enduring personally. But, but maybe even beyond that, questions are likely to arise about the impact of that, the impact of, of Paul now being in chains. What does this mean for the mission does Paul's imprisonment mean the advance of the gospel has stopped? And so Paul writes this to encourage them not to lose heart. And one way he does this, I think particularly in this letter, is by helping this church see and gain a new perspective. He encourages them by, by lifting their eyes to something bigger than their current circumstances. And specifically, Paul wants to put his trials, and, and any trials for that matter that they might experience, he wants to put that in its proper perspective, in an eternal perspective. Paul doesn't dismiss trials. He doesn't dismiss suffering. But he wants us to see those things, and really all things, in comparison with and in light of eternity. I don't know if you've been looking at these images that have come out this week from the Webb telescope. It's breathtaking. 
just incredible images. Yeah, there's one on the screen. This telescope that's looking 13.6 billion light years into space. Like we can't, we can't fathom our own galaxy, like where we're at in the universe. And now, because of technology like this, there's an assumption that there are at least two trillion galaxies out there. Like, can't even get our, our minds around that. And there's something about seeing these images, these pictures. It's awe-inspiring. It's, it's worship-inducing. It's humbling to see that kind of, of grandeur. And it somehow makes everything, in my life at least, seem a little bit smaller. Now, I think this is what the Holy Spirit, through Paul, is doing for the church. Lifting our gaze from our challenges and our difficulties, our trials, our, our sufferings, and, and look to Christ. See those sufferings in light of Christ. See your circumstances in light of eternity. This is what's happening in this letter in a glorious way. In chapter 1, Paul has pointed our gaze to God's plans and his purposes from eternity past, just grounding and founding all of history, all of time in God's providential and sovereign hands. Then in chapter 2, he, he brings that glorious eternal plan down to a, a real point in time and history when Christ's redemptive work on the cross made us alive. Those of us who were dead in our sins, now alive. And then Paul comes to chapter 3, where we're at this morning, and he wants us to understand something incredible that's happening, a, a revelation that's now seen for, for the first time in history, what he refers to as the mystery of the gospel. Now, a mystery is a key term we encounter in our New Testaments. We, we heard about it in the text Scott read from Colossians. It's an important word to understand. This Greek word, mysterion, from which we get mystery, it's not how we often think and, and use that word. Mystery for us is something that's, that's unknown and it can't be solved. There's, there's something about it that you can't ever really get to. That, that's not how the Bible speaks when it uses this word we have, mystery. It's, it's not something that's unknowable, but rather it's something that had been hidden, which has now been revealed. It's the same word in, in Greek that's translated for us in the ESV as secrets in Matthew 13, 11, where Jesus says to his disciples that to them it had been given to know the mysterion, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And in both of those cases, it's this idea of, of revelation. What was once concealed, that veil has been lifted. And with it has come understanding that was previously unknown. They think about the movie Sixth Sense, maybe, for instance. If you haven't seen that, sorry to, to spoil it, but, I mean, you, you've had a lot of time. So there's this critical place, though. There's a point in that story that for the first 95% of the movie is hidden, right? It's, it's hidden in plain sight. It's not that it wasn't there. In fact, if you watch the movie a second time, you see it everywhere. But then at the end of the movie, this mystery is revealed, and once it's revealed, it, it unlocks the entire meaning of that film. Like, you can't understand that movie without this revelation. That is a very weak, illustrative sort of way that the kind of mystery that we're seeing in our New Testaments. That, that Paul writes to the Romans in 1625 of this mystery that was kept secret for long ago, long ages, but has now been disclosed. 
In Colossians, what we heard this morning, he speaks of this mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now made manifest to his saints. Nineteen times Paul will speak of these types of mysteries, these elements of God's eternal plans that were, were not fully revealed in the Old Testament. They were there. There, there were glimpses, there were clues, there were shadows and types, but, but now in Christ, everything has come into the light. Everything that was hidden has been revealed. And so Paul, in our text this morning, I believe he's revealing at least three elements of the, gospel, the mystery of the gospel. And through these, his desire is to strengthen the faith of the Ephesian Christians and to spur them on towards gospel mission. And by God's grace, this text, I hope, can, can do that same work in us and through us today as we look at the mystery of the gospel and the mission of God. And it's important for us to note that our text this morning is actually part of a parenthetical aside. If you look back up to verse 1 of chapter 3, Paul is about to pray. Like the glorious and the eternal truths that he's been describing in these first two chapters, it's almost like they're just bubbling out of him in praise and leading him to intercession for this beloved congregation. It's just a, a beautiful picture and a reminder for us, I think, that, that our theology ought to lead us to doxology. The point of knowing more about God is knowing God more. And so Paul, filling up with this affection for Christ and his church, he's about to pray. And you'll see he actually gets to that prayer in verse 14. But from verses 2 into 13, he seems to, to break off of that for just a moment so that he might press in a little more on these glorious mysteries of the gospel and his role as an ambassador of that gospel. We're just looking at a portion of this parenthetical, but within it, I believe we find the main point of this text, and really all text for that matter. That what we see in the middle of our text this morning, there in verse 10, and with the key words, so that, you know, in other words, all that's come before this was to make this point, and that is that God's manifold wisdom has now been made known. God's manifold wisdom is now being displayed. And that's where I want to highlight the first component of this mystery of the gospel that's been revealed for us and for the church. And that is this, that God's chosen purpose to glorify himself is to glorify himself through the exaltation of Christ. God's chosen purpose is to glorify himself through the exaltation of Christ. Paul's giving us God's purpose and aim not just for this church in Ephesus, not just for missions, but for all of history, for all of creation, that the point of everything is God's glory. Now, that isn't necessarily new. This idea had been there all along. In fact, it has a prominent place in the Old Testament. We could look at so many texts and see this. In Isaiah, we would see clearly that God created the world. He created and chose Israel for his glory, for his namesake. Psalmist writes, the heavens, they're declaring his glory. The Exodus account, both the salvation of Israel and the judgment on Egypt, those were both ultimately to display and give God glory. In the prophets, we learn God will not give his glory to another. He's jealous for his own namesake. Just over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God being motivated by his own glory, his own namesake. So God's chosen purpose for all of time and history being his own glory, that, that's nothing new per se. 
But what had been in shadows that is now substance, what was once a a fuzzy picture that has now come into crystal clear focus is, verse 11 tells us that this eternal plan has now been realized. And it's been realized in Christ. And it's not glory in some vague, ambiguous sense of the word, but rather a specific and ultimate way that God has chosen for his glory to be revealed. That God's chosen purpose in eternity past, before the founding of the world, was to display his glory. That purpose is now realized, and it's realized through the exalting of Christ, his beloved son. In Philippians, we see it like this, where Paul explains that through Christ's finished work on the cross, God has, he writes, highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every name, a name every knee will bow, every tongue confess to. And all of this, Paul says, is what? To the glory of God, the church in Corinth. Paul's going to write, God is now shown in the hearts of believers to give the light of the knowledge of his glory. And where do we find that? Where do we see that? Well, Paul tells us, in the face of Jesus Christ. Like, this is exactly the same sort of thing we're seeing in our text this morning in Ephesians. Paul describes it here as making known his manifold wisdom. Now, that word translated for us as manifold, it means much diversity in color. It's the idea of an an endless variety. Just imagine looking at a field full of wildflowers. There's infinite complexity in the color scheme there. There's infinite beauty. And Paul says that's what it is in the wisdom of God. And that wisdom, that glory, has only now been made known fully because of the finished work of Christ. And this truth encourages our hearts, but it also informs our task. You see, this is the purpose of missions. We can say this is the motivation of missions. Or maybe we can say this is the why of missions. Like this is what motivated those two German men to do what they did, what captured their affections. I mean, did you notice what these words that they shouted from that slave ship revealed? Notice what they didn't say. They didn't hold their shackled fists in the air and say, we must go to this island and in our going declare our disdain and our disgust for the blight that is human slavery. They didn't say that. They also didn't say, we have to, we must go to these poor, lost souls who are on their way to hell. They didn't say that. They didn't mention the people they were going to. They didn't mention themselves. They didn't mention what they were going to do necessarily, their ministry at all. Instead, their motivation is what we see as God's motivation. May the lamb receive his reward. May may God be glorified through the exaltation of Christ. You know, when we look at the the missionary task that remains in our world, it's it's daunting. It's overwhelming. There's still 3.2 billion people in the world with, with little to no access to the gospel. Those people, those 3.2 billion, are are represented by 7,402 unique people groups considered unreached. People groups, entire cultures and languages full of men, women, and children who go their entire lives never meeting a Christian, never hearing the gospel. 
And 96% of those types of peoples, they live in this area of the world known as the 1040 window, this geographical designation on the globe where unreached peoples are just pervasive. Places like Niger. And if you know anything about the world, you know that the places in that window where these people live, it's not just that they're dark with lostness. These are some of the most difficult and dangerous places on the planet. Just rampant poverty. Just overwhelming insecurity. This is important for us to think through because we don't go to the unreached because we feel sorry for their physical state. Like the missionary task isn't primarily about getting potable water or, or proper health care or good education to those who have no access to it. That's not, it cannot be our ultimate motivation for missions. It's not their physical state, and it's not even their spiritual state. As odd as that might sound, even the lostness of those 3.2 billion people, while that ought to break our hearts, that ought to stir our affections, even that, though, isn't and cannot be our ultimate motivation for missions. Instead, and, and, and when you get this, it, it changes everything. Like, especially in missions and maybe even in the church life, we want to jump to the what's and the where's and the how's, but none of that matters if you don't have the why correct. Our ultimate motivation is that we long to see Christ receiving the worship and praise that Christ alone is worthy of. We want him to receive that from every nation, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every one of these 7,402 unreached Peoples, we, we pray for that. We, we long for, for God's glory to cover the face of the earth like waters cover the sea. We long to see this exaltation of Christ among the nations because, and watch this, his glory is actually their good. It's incredible. Like the peoples who are, are currently bowing down to the lesser gods, to false gods, to idols, to demonic forces, we want them to worship Christ so that they might sing and be made glad in the one true God of their salvation. Like, look, what's driving us to go and to pray and to give? We, we want the unreached peoples in that 1040 window who are currently living in darkness. We want them to exalt Christ. We want them to worship Christ. And in so doing, we know, because we've experienced it, that they will taste then. They'll see then that the Lord is good. He's worthy to be praised. We long for them to know that in his presence, it's in his presence only that there's fullness of joy. His glory is their good. A glory now realized in Christ. A glory that's where all of history is heading. We get a glimpse of that future reality in Revelation 7, 9. Where we see there the, the eternal worship of Christ from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. As they're gathered there around the throne of Christ. God's chosen purpose perfectly fulfilled. As John Piper so famously said, missions is not the ultimate goal. Worship is. His missions exist because worship does not. There's coming a day when missions will end, but worship is forever. So our desire, our motivation for missions is for this to become ever more a reality now on earth as it is in heaven. That the mystery of the gospel is that God's chosen purpose to glorify himself is through the exaltation of his beloved son, of, through Christ. That's the why of missions. So we're, we're now prepared to ask ourselves, well, then how? 
How does that happen? And that begins to show us the second component of this mystery now revealed. And it's this, that God's chosen plan to display his purpose, namely his glory, his chosen plan to display his glory is through his church. It's not just the salvation of individual people that will display the glory of God, this manifold wisdom. Instead, verse 10 tells us what makes the purpose known is this forming of a new people called the church, the the coming together of Jews and Gentiles, which Paul says makes known this manifold wisdom of God, that, that God's chosen plan to accomplish his chosen purpose is not missionaries, it's the church. It's Christ reconciling two hostile groups into one body. That sort of thing puts God's glory, his divine wisdom on display. Not just to the world, but did you see, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Like it's the nations coming into the people of God, which is the mystery now revealed in Christ. Now once again, the the idea that the Gentiles or the nations were, were part of God's plan Seeds of that have been there all along, been there since the beginning of the creation of the people of God. You think of Genesis 12, God's calling to Abram. And what does he say? He says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Genesis 22, it's even clear, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. You think of First Chronicles, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. The psalmist exhorts, praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples. Isaiah, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Then just a few chapters later, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. It's Isaiah who writes of a day that's coming when all the nations will be streaming to the mountain of the Lord's temple. Daniel's vision, think of that, the ancient of days being served by all peoples, all nations, all languages. This idea of a a comprehensive and and global scope to the nature of God's plan, the seeds for that have been there all along. But but the mystery was how? how? How could these pagan enemies, idolatrous nations, how can they come into the kingdom of God? And Paul writes earlier in verse 6 that the truth that has been revealed is that through Christ, the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body, this church. That these two hostile groups have become one. The mystery of the church is how Christ has, has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. How he's brought near those who were once far off. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, he says, Those who were once strangers and and aliens, they're now fellow citizens. It isn't just that the Gentiles are now allowed entrance somehow, but but held at arm's length, sort of a a long-term, albeit foreign, house guest. I mean, that would be scandalous enough, but but it's more than that. The Gentiles are now, because of Christ, welcomed on equal footing, welcomed as sons into the family of God, not because of bloodlines, not because of circumcision, not because of law-keeping, but by faith. No longer any divisions. It's a new man in place of the two. Peace, he writes, has, has been brought as Jesus has through the cross, killed the hostility. 
this influx of the nations, these walls being torn down, this mystery that's finally been revealed, finally been made possible in Christ, and is finally now visible through the church. And Paul tells us that is our testimony, not just to the world, but to the heavenly realm. I mean, as glorious as our individual salvation is, that, that was not God's chosen plan to accomplish his chosen purpose, to display his manifold wisdom, his glory. Instead, God's chosen plan is the church, the, the making one of Jews and Gentiles. That's huge. It has implications for us, has implications for this missionary task. That what's happening in the church is our reconciliation with God is being made visible, and is being made visible through our reconciliation with man. That's why unity is such a pervasive subject in the New Testament. Like this reality, this coming together is our testimony. And it's this that causes angels to worship, causes demons to tremble, reminding both of them all things have now been united under Christ. And it's through that united church full of diverse peoples of the earth that God is putting on display, just, just parading a reality that, that even his spiritual opponents cannot help but, but marvel at as they see the, the wisdom he has exhibited in the reconciling work of his son. And this is what's happening in every true local church, whether that's in a, a nice building or under a mango tree. This is what's happening here at Sovereign Grace, as God has providentially positioned you at this point in time in history, at this point in this place to, to make known his manifold wisdom through, through your sacrificial love for one another, through your forgiveness and, and putting of one another first, through your becoming one body you are a visible testimony of the radical work of the gospel, displaying to the heavenly realm the, the reconciling work of Christ, what he accomplished between you and God. This encourages us, and it impacts our mission, that the praying, the, the giving, the going, the sending for the missionary task, it, it doesn't have as its aim getting more and more people into salvation. Or rather, the, the aim is seeing more and more peoples into the church. We don't just want individuals in the 1040 window to, to hear and believe the gospel. We want to see peoples coming into the church, coming together into the church. Peoples like the Gurmanchi and the Tomashek of Niger, these sworn enemies. Centuries of baggage. Centuries in modern day slavery. Not what their grandparents did, like right now, slavery. What makes our church there in Niger, Eglise Gomni, Grace Church, such a testimony? One of the things is that these two peoples, the Gurmanchi and the Tomashek, now in Christ have come together. And they've come together in the church as Christ has made peace between these hostile enemies. He's made peace between man and man who were sworn enemies, just like he made peace. This is what puts on display the peace he's made between God and man when they were enemies of the cross. And in so doing, it is not just a testimony to the people of Niger, as powerful as that is, but a testimony to the angelic, to the demonic forces of light to just say, look what God has done through the work of his son. 
Like there's no explanation outside of that, no strategy you could boast in, no wisdom of man that could point to that. We must simply sit back and say, God did this. And the mystery revealed is that it's this multi-ethnic church purchased by the blood of Christ that God has chosen as his plan to display his purpose, his glory. And finally, the the last component of this mystery revealed, we've seen the why, we've, we've seen the how, now it's the what. What does this actually look like in its most practical sense what is this going, what is it going to take that will build up this kind of church that will display this kind of glory? And I believe that this passage shows us, and that is this, this third mystery revealed is that God's chosen pathway to build his church, his chosen plan, and to display his glory, his chosen purpose, is the proclamation of Christ to the nations. God's chosen pathway to do all of this, to accomplish his plans and purposes, is a proclamation of his son to the nations. From the beginning, you know, God has in, invited his people into his work. The first, the very first man and woman in Genesis 1, they were commanded to, to be fruitful, to, to multiply, to fill the earth with the glory of God. However, we know after sin, humanity can never fulfill this mandate, even when it was reinstated to Noah. They couldn't do it perfectly until they were somehow rescued from their sin. And so now that the mystery now that's been revealed in Christ is that this command will finally be fulfilled. This command is now a commissioning, that this will go forth, this will happen, but now not through procreation, but through proclamation. Paul writes in verse 8 of the grace that was given to him, that the very least of the saints, that in God's wisdom, the former persecutor, the enemy of the beloved bride of Christ, he's now the one who gets to herald these mysteries. It's grace, he says. It's all grace that, that he's been given this. He's been given this to, to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. And in that little phrase, I think we see both the aim and the audience We see both the the content of his message and the context of his mission. He says he's been given a particular aim, namely to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now that word, unsearchable, it's not that it's something that we shouldn't try to search for, but rather it carries with it this idea of we'll never stop finding. It's a bottomless ocean of treasures that we'll spend eternity mining the depths of. We'll take eternity to exhaust. The riches that we have in Christ, they're they're endless. I mean, we see this all over the New Testament. Romans 2, these riches are his goodness and patience. Romans 11, these riches are his wisdom and his knowledge. 1 Timothy 6, his riches are his blessings. In Colossians 2, his riches are his assurance. Colossians 3, his riches are his word. And here in Ephesians, Paul will talk about the riches of his grace and his love. Just on and on these riches of Christ go. Paul explaining how we've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And God desires for us to know these unsearchable riches that he has for us in Christ, the forgiveness that we have, the reconciliation we have, the new life we have, the power over sin we have, the hope of eternity we have. All of this is his goodness for you if you are in Christ. 
And Paul preaches that it's because of this eternal purpose of God, realized now in Christ, that the unthinkable, the unimaginable has happened. As verse 12 tells us, we now have, through faith, boldness and access with confidence to God. It's incredible. No more veils. No more only one person on one day of year daring to enter the Holy of Holies. No, the through Christ, Jew and Gentile alike can enter the presence of God. And not just enter, enter with boldness. That we can come before him in absolute confidence that we'll be accepted, that we'll be heard. And we can do that not because of any merit of our own, but completely because of the faithfulness of Christ. Paul is stirring their affections for Christ by pointing again their gaze to the treasure that is Christ. That's the aim of preaching. That's the content of the message. But there was also a specific audience, a context for the mission. It's the, the Gentiles. It was the nations. He says the mystery of the gospel and God's chosen pathway is that this preaching of Christ will go to the nations. It will, verse 9 says, bring to light for everyone the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. In other words, the means that God uses to accomplish his plan, the church, which God has chosen to accomplish his purpose, his glory, it's preaching that, that lifts high the unsearchable riches of Christ, the gospel, and it's preaching that has the nations in view, preaching that, that stirs your affections for Christ and drives your attention to the peoples of the world. That God has entrusted this missionary task, not to individuals, not to missionaries who, who live in Africa, but to the church. He says, faith comes by hearing. And Paul says to those in Rome, but how can they hear unless someone preaches? And how can someone preach unless he is sent? That God builds his glory-displaying church through the sending out of heralds, of messengers of Christ's unsearchable riches to the ends of the earth. And as that gospel goes out, it's God who, who gathers his elect from all the peoples of the earth. This mystery is marvelous. This wisdom is incredible. It's awesome. It puts everything in its proper light. It puts everything in an eternal perspective. It puts our lives, puts the church, puts the, the missionary task. It puts even our suffering and our trials in the providential and the sovereign and good hands of God. Paul wants to be explicitly clear as he, as he writes from a prison cell chained to his captor to this church that he loves so much. He wants to be explicitly clear that they understand no imprisonment, no jail cell, no suffering, no anything can stop or thwart the plans and purposes of God. In fact, it's more than that. Part of the mystery of God's chosen pathway to build his church is that he has ordained everything even our suffering to accomplish exactly what he means for it to accomplish. He wants the church to understand that he's not a prisoner of Nero. He's not a prisoner of Rome. He is a prisoner of Christ and Christ alone. Not one hair is going to be taken from his head apart from the will of God. And he writes in verse 13, Don't lose heart for my suffering. This is actually for your glory. That his suffering, 
His imprisonment, all of his beatings, all of his stonings, all of his suffering and hardships, that they have come as a direct result of Paul's faithfulness to declare this mystery of the gospel. These unsearchable riches of Christ and that his suffering and his imprisonment is for their benefit. That that is actually for the benefit of the nations. And Paul wants the church to know that his imprisonment and, and his suffering, it hasn't thwarted the plans and purposes of God. No, his imprisonment and his suffering, they're part of the plans and purposes of God. From his imprisonment for them in verse 1 that we see to his suffering for them in verse 13, Paul wants them to have complete confidence in God's sovereign plan. It's not God working some sort of plan B. It's not God scrambling to try to find silver lining in a, in a bad situation. We don't have God trying to take cosmic lemons and make cosmic lemonade. No, this is God's chosen pathway to build his church, to advance his kingdom, to display his glory. And everything is going according to plan. And Paul wants them to know that if he is in chains, then that means Christ is going to be magnified even more through those chains than he would without them. That those chains drive Paul to Christ. Those chains drive Paul to Christ where he can learn that it's Christ, it's Jesus' grace that is sufficient. It's the lesson he can learn to, to count all things as loss compared to knowing Christ, sharing in his suffering. Those chains declare to the nations and, and to the church the supreme treasure, the unsearchable riches and worth that is Christ, the same Christ he's been proclaiming. But ultimately, those chains around the wrist of Paul in that Roman prison are to serve as, as a dim echo, as a reminder of the nails in the wrist of Christ on that Roman cross. A cross, Paul tells us, was the plan before the foundation of the world. That through the suffering and slain Messiah, this mystery of the purpose and plan of God might be revealed. And salvation of the nations might be possible. The mystery of the gospel, the, the purpose of missions, the point of history. It is for his glory. It, it is through his church and it's to all peoples.